0: Hello and welcome to ECFR Russia podcast, Under the account. that's the title we have borrowed from Nikolai Gogol, and Gogol, of course, can explain almost everything about Russia. Today, we are going to explain civil-military relations and various chains of command um, with two excellent experts. Uh, Kirill Shamil is a visiting fellow at DCFR, and he's a specialist in civil-military relations. And also, we are joined by uh, Pavel Podvik, who uh, works for UN Institute for Disarmament Research and is a foremost expert on nuclear weapons and everything to do with them. So we are undertaking an ambitious task of talking in parallel and comparing the uh, civil-military component in conventional forces and and nuclear washes. Uh, Wish us luck. Uh, I hope the result will be interesting, but let's maybe um, start from uh, Kirill. Um, you have you have researched civil military relations in Russia, so uh, and you have spoken about it earlier too. But just briefly, maybe outline um, what is special about Russia in this respect. What are the sort of features? one needs to know when discussing Russia in that context, and then Pavel later can uh, const- contrast that with the, what's happening on nuclear field.
1: Um, okay. Um, thank you, Kadri. When it comes to the Russian civil-military relations, the first thing that comes to, I think, everyone's mind is that Russia and the military are two very close things the military played has played a significant role in Russia's history, basically since the medieval ages. And, uh, uh, but the question is what kind of role in what domains? When uh, civil military researchers generally distinguish several layers of uh, military's involvement in politics, not only in Russia, but elsewhere. The first one is the involvement of the military and other security agencies in politics, which is like the struggle for power, uh, we've seen in some other countries when politicians, generals, run as politicians or may occupy the power by conducting military coup. Uh, this seemingly is not the case in in Russia, but uh, there are some other dimensions. The other is the role of the military in policymaking. Uh, the first and the first foremost is policymaking in the defense sector. What what is how significant, how powerful the role of the minister of defense and the general staff and senior military officials in shaping both the agenda and the implementation of defense reforms and other security reforms. And here, the role of the Russian military has been historically uh, very high, or how we say the military autonomy in defense policymaking was high. And the uh, last 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union were basically about uh, how the civilians, both Yeltsin, Putin, and their officials tried to Um, limit the autonomy of the military in uh, shaping uh, the defense realm with some success in some, some challenges. Uh, Another domain is the role of the military in society. And again, historically in Russia, the the military, especially in the Soviet Union played a significant role in, in, in the social relations. Uh, The most obvious thing is the conscription, especially in the Soviet Union uh, when Almost everyone was, uh, every man uh, was supposed to serve in the military in Russia. It's uh, a bit, uh, it's become less of an important, at least before the partial mobilization. But still, in terms of the culture, patriotism, national identity, uh, the military played a role, and we see how currently officials in the Kremlin. Use the image of the military a lot both to legitimize their policies and to show the real uh quote unquote patriotic uh Russian citizen who serves in the military uh, and finally, it's the control uh of, of the civilian control in the on the battlefield and uh this is and it relates it has some relation to the role the military autonomy in policymaking, and here we see a historic again, struggle for civilians to To make military soldiers and officers do what they actually want, uh, and especially not not to achieve the goals, but to behave in a way that is regulated, uh, both legal by legal norms and informal mechanisms. And uh, especially in the last two years, since the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've seen several cases when uh, basically soldiers and uh, Russian personnel, military personnel. Um, had violated uh, both not only international rules of the war, but also Russia's rules of, um, well, conduct on the battlefield. And uh, this is both a problem on the technical aspect, command and control aspects, how to control the military, but also in terms of the uh, human component, how the military officers and soldiers are being raised, trained, educated, and what kind of culture they have.
0: Thank you, Kirill. Uh, Pavel, how does it look from um, your angle? I mean, there has been a lot of dispute about you know, why why the Russian military obey even the stupid orders. I mean, on the conventional level, the I think there is pretty unanimous assessment that the initial <clears throat> plan of attack on Ukraine was bad. Nonetheless, it didn't um, meet meaningful resistance from from the military at at any level and of course the same question is anxiously debated every now and then about the nuclear realm that you know if putin wants to push the button will the military allow him to do that i mean i know that is utterly a uh, simplistic uh, <clears throat> way to pose that question but uh, feel free to Uh, talk about it in a more professional manner?
2: Uh, There's a difference, of course, between the conventional and the uh, nuclear. And uh, uh, I think uh, if you look uh, back at the the Soviet times and uh, to a large extent to Russian uh, history as well, uh, the uh, nuclear weapons have uh, always been, uh, they always had special place in all kinds of structures. So, uh, for example, starting from the, uh, the, sp- the special units, uh, the 12th uh, Main Directorate of the Ministry of Defense, that in some shape or form goes back to the uh, early uh, 50s, and uh, uh, so and that was a very highly uh, dedicated force, and uh, to the extent uh, that they uh, they they were known as uh, uh, uh deaf and dumb. Uh, because they were literally prohibited from socializing with other uh, units so that's they they had their separate lives uh, so and and uh, so that and I think that this culture is still uh, is still there so there is a it shows you that it is it was uh, and it is uh, still again uh, of something separate from everything else uh, and we also can talk about how the uh, the entire nuclear enterprise uh, was, uh, in fact, separate from the normal uh, chain of uh, decision making in terms of uh, military procurement and, and all that. So, for example, we all know this, the Military Industrial Commission uh, back in the Soviet days, which was a very powerful uh, body that uh developed uh, pretty much everything uh related to the military uh so but the uh the ministry of, of medium machine building that was the nuclear uh, uh nuclear enterprise that's never been part of that it was a totally separate structure so i think so we we, we see that uh the, the the special role of uh things nuclear uh is is there and there is a, in, i do believe that it can it reflect it is reflected in uh, the way that people think about these things uh also uh, I think uh, and then we come to the point where can the, the question is sort of uh, well would could the president issue the order and would the military uh, and uh, it's a tricky one uh, because uh, <clears throat> uh we uh, I guess we all uh, would agree that there is a uh, yeah, a, there is a formal chain of command uh but then uh as far as I can tell uh the uh the current uh, Russian leadership the current uh political system in Russia uh it actually uh in, 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 in involves a very strong kind of informal component So there there is a there is a this way of interacting in uh in the power and uh A, we need to uh, understand uh, that when it comes to nuclear weapons, uh, uh, there is is a good uh, way of thinking about that that actually uh, belongs to one of the American generals when he was talking about Trump. Uh, He said that, uh, yes, uh, a president alone can issue the order, but he cannot implement that order alone. So uh it, it is uh there there is no button on the president's desk uh, that he could push and everything would fly no uh, it does involve people and people uh would be uh it's they they may not be in a position to make the decisions but they would be interacting and they would be doing something so let me give you an ex- a good, good example in my view uh, we all remember uh February 27 22 uh, this scene uh, with the long table and Gerasimov and Shoigu sitting there, and uh, uh, President Putin saying that I order the forces to be brought on high alert and special mode of operation, and all that. Uh, and if you think about that, uh, they could have done some pretty scare- scary things. They could have dispersed. Uh, uh, mobile ICBM launchers, they could have sent submarines into sea, they could have done a lot of things that would actually be following that order. And what they did, uh, what they did was they just added a few uh, folks to the combat crews the uh, the uh, that, that uh, were at the various command centers. That was all. Maybe that was the idea from the beginning. Uh, I don't know, but uh, maybe also that they just decided to do what the, the minimum they can get away with. So that's uh, that's a possibility. Uh, another uh, <clears throat> it, somewhat different example, but it, it's also, uh, in my view, uh, an interesting example of that kind of a yes, the order is issued. Uh, but uh, it's not clear how and if it's followed. Uh, when Prigozhin was marching toward Moscow, I guess there was an order to stop him and it didn't quite work that way. so so I think that 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 we should also keep in mind that uh, if if it would come to uh, an order to use nuclear weapons, uh, then it would not be very clear, how exactly that order would be followed. And I think it would not be clear to uh, the president and uh,
1: to his subordinates as well. Kirill. Uh, just uh, maybe to follow up on what Pavel has said, uh, I've got a few thoughts uh, um, in my head. The first was is about how actually in the recent 30 years of Russia's civil military history, uh, the Kremlin uh, paid a lot of attention to depoliticizing and uh, establishing a more uh, stricter uh, control over what generals say or do not say in public realm we f- remember from the 90s when generals were uh, felt that they could uh, argue against some of the president's decisions both in- including in the media um, and also generals as general ivashov uh, uh, and the others who were criticizing even the deployment of the Russian military forces in Chechnya. First, they were criticizing for the lack of readiness and combat effectiveness of preparedness for the operation, but also against the role of uh, the use of the military in, in domestic affairs. And the Kremlin learned the lesson because it's always an equation of like with two sides, first the military and then the civilian leadership. And during Putin, they made several legal and... Uh, human uh, changes that basically made the Russian senior military senior command uh, way more obedient and um, uh, subject to the rule of the civilian leader, first and foremost, is, of course, President Putin. And the other dimension, what's interesting about the, I, and I fully agree with Pavel about the special role of uh, strategic missile forces, in, in my research, I've noticed that the uh, officers from uh, uh, from the strategic missile forces, were always considered as uh, smart guys. <laughs> when it comes to, uh, they were uh, always considered as people who know science. And when something related to, was related to the discussions about, like, you know, equipment, the use of force, and so on. And for example, when Shoigu came to power, he uh, focused. He expanded the uh, his his. Uh, um so he basically created the uh, uh, deputy minister of defense focus on military science and the first head of uh, the uh, the first deputy minister of defense responsible for the military science uh became a general who actually served in the strategic missile forces and it's and it's been like that for for quite quite some time
0: Pavel
1: wants to add. That's very nice to hear because uh,
2: uh, technically I'm a lieutenant of the Strategic Rocket Forces. Yes, <laughs> that was my military specialty back in the in the 80s. Uh, that was a while ago and the missile that we were uh, working on that's been decommissioned a long uh, time. But uh, uh, speaking seriously, I think uh, this is not even the Strategic Rocket Forces. Uh, we're talking about the 12th uh, Directorate uh, which, uh, in fact, nobody even knew that this thing existed. And, I mean, in the West, if you go back to the literature on the Soviet uh, command control, everybody would say, oh, this is the KGB that handles all the, all the weapons. That was totally untrue. Uh, and uh, so the entire kind of Western intelligence apparatus uh, would not even know that this is a separate and dedicated structure.
0: Indeed. Well, what Carelliu said about um, role of generals, that is a little bit ironic in a way. I I remember very well how in the nineteen nineties, you know, civilian control of a military was was one of the sort of demands uh, that the West had to Russia. You know, if you want to be part of Western club, make a civilian person defense minister. And now we have reached the point. Where, I mean, maybe not right now, but I think in 22, we we kind of wished that some of the generals would explain to civilian leadership that uh, their political aims and military means are are not compatible. Ivashov still tried in his letter, but that, of course, was a marginal thing that led nowhere.
2: Yeah but that, that's the exactly uh, as you as you uh, mentioned this is the irony of this that sort of uh, everybody thought that oh the civilian control over the military is the good thing and it is a good thing in general but then we see in Russia today that that's exactly what happened that the it's not the minister of defense that was uh, Pushing for that war. It was the political civilian and political leadership that was uh, giving orders and it turns out that, well, maybe that wasn't such a good thing after all. But that's probably uh, the case in, 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 in other states where the structure is even, uh, not even, but uh, where the structure is uh, kind of better established. Uh, sometimes yes, you, you do want uh, the military uh, to give advice and uh uh, well, it depends on the on the on the on the country how this advice is handled within the system.
0: And in this context, it's actually interesting to see that now again it is civilians and not even politicians, but experts. Uh, first and foremost, Sergey Karaganov, who urges uh, use of nuclear weapons in. Um, in, in conflict with Ukraine, or at least in the context of conflict uh, with Ukraine, but potentially against uh, Western targets. Um, Pavel, what's your, how do you understand that? I mean, that has made some people in the West really very anxious.
2: Well, I think everybody uh, got anxious, uh, of course, uh, but at the same time, you, you could look at it from, again, a slightly different angle. Uh, Uh, which is that uh, uh, these calls, they did reflect uh, a certain frustration of certain people that uh, nuclear weapons are not working uh, in the way that maybe initially uh, uh, the Russian leadership was hoping to. Uh, And uh, it was, to me, uh, that was interesting that uh, this uh, this call generated uh, some discussion uh, in the expert community uh, in Russia. Uh, there was a pushback. Uh, and, uh, and apparently, uh, there was a discussion uh, as well in the kind of government. And it was also interesting that, uh, as I understand, uh, eventually it uh, uh, drifted toward this idea of uh, doing something around tests, uh, nuclear tests uh, and, uh, again, the, the bureaucracy, the, uh, not the military bureaucracy at this uh, point, but the uh, foreign ministry, uh, uh, discussed various options. And it, it, they eventually came up with this idea of de the CTBTO, CTPT, uh, but in a way that does not undermine uh the, the, the idea of the uh, test ban. So the, the signal uh, was sent, but not in a way that uh, would kind of a damage uh, Russia's reputation, damage the uh, nuclear test ban and all that. So in a way, I, I see that uh, almost like uh, this uh, uh this long table order uh to yorozumo and Shoigu when the uh you get a political signal and it's kind of a very strong way, like, we need to do something and all that uh but then uh, it gets uh kind of transformed into something that uh is not that uh, dangerous, I would say, uh, not, that, not that menacing. Uh, but the signal is there, I agree. But uh, we, we also need to look at the kind of a pushback and uh, the reluctance uh, of the bureaucracy to follow.
0: CTPD to our listeners, that's Comprehensive Test Ban uh, Treaty. Uh, Kirill, did you have anything to add here?
1: Yeah, I can just agree with Pavel. From what I've heard uh, from some of my friends who are still in Russia and uh, you know study Russian politics or analyze it or somehow involved in it, that they, they seem to agree that Karaganov was asked uh, to, uh, to publish this article and to start, to basically start this wave of discussions and to, 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 to test the waters of uh, what the reaction would be towards the use of nuclear weapons. It's a bit of a a menacing logic to me, but I I guess it has some ground if you look at it from the Kremlin's perspective, how they try to uh, politicize the use of nuclear weapons for the goals they are currently facing. But as a a Russian citizen myself, I'm very just uh, as an important announcement, I'm very saddened by the development of the the expertise on such a serious matter in Russia. Just in my view, this shouldn't be published.
0: Thanks. Well, moving on to other matters, let's talk a little bit also about the the role technology plays in in Russian military or technology uh, versus people. I I think what we see in Ukraine, you know, where you see Russian or North Korean, Iranian weapons uh, vis-a-vis. Western supplies to Ukraine and what seems to emerge um, Western weapons are better but also a lot more expensive and I think what what Russia is counting on and maybe correctly is that lower quality North Korean weapons are are just as good as, as needed for the task or quantity compensates for what is lacking in the quality and of course Traditionally, Russia has been. Russia has never had quite the same attitude towards human life as 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 Western militaries, especially these days. I think one of the most striking things that has stayed with me from one of my favorite books, that is uh, "Secondhand Time" by Svetlana Alexievich. Uh, that explores the, um, the legacy of the Soviet Union in various spheres of life, and she also writes about military. She writes about um, about um, I think it was a test of mine clearing equipment, and Russia had managed to buy um, mm. a Western gadget uh, for that, and they were they were testing it. And then it found a mine and it blew up, as as it should. It did exactly what it was designed to do. And one Russian general observing that had been desperate. You know, why destroy foreign technology as if we don't have enough people? and And that was a completely sincere remark on his behalf, which was quite... Quite incredible to me, uh, to me as a as a reader. But what what would you say about that full complex of issues?
2: Uh, let me uh, maybe uh, start. Well, I I think uh, there there yeah there are all kind of stories, and uh, I think there is a point there that the yes uh, the. The tradition of valuing uh, human life is different in, in Russia and back in the Soviet Union. That's uh, that's probably true. Uh, but uh, also, speaking of kind of a technology and all these uh, things, uh, we uh, again, I don't really know the conventional uh, forces and how it works there, but I can kind of guess from what I've seen from uh, other uh kind of new, more nuclear related areas uh there is a uh, there is a certain kind of a d- d- disconnect if you will so there there is a uh there there's a lot of excitement about certain uh, technological developments like oh we we develop this missile or we develop this uh, uh electronic warfare uh gadget or this and that uh and but the the way uh, the system uh, worked in the Soviet Union and probably works in Russia these days, uh, I, I guess, uh, a lot of this development is driven by the uh, industry uh, who come up with some exciting technology things and all that. Uh, and uh, uh, I think there is a skepticism in, in, in the military about many of those and sometimes it is imposed on them and they may not know exactly what to do with this or it is uh, too complicated. Uh, And so there is a a kind of caution there. And in the end, uh, it it may not work as well as those designers who were working on that uh, were counting on. Uh, It's, I guess, again, it's a to, to, to blanket the statement, uh, I, I'm sure that there are uh, uh, technologies that actually do work, uh, but, uh, but I think there is a kind of a general dynamic there uh, is probably uh, somewhere in, in that region. So there, there is some kind of a caution, there is a skepticism, uh, there is a general uh, idea that uh, simpler solutions are better. And uh, there is no fascination uh, in, in the military. There is no fascination with the, all this kind of a gadget and technological breakthroughs and all that. Uh, so,
1: that, that dynamic, I think it is there. In terms of, uh, when it comes to the discussion about this this military equipment, I'd say that, uh, in my opinion, what's more important is not the quality of the equipment per se, but how how the military uses this equipment. So the quality of the skill set that personnel, military personnel have, uh, and whether they can uh, exploit the benefits of the equipment on mass scale. And when we compare with the Western and Russian militaries, it's important to keep in mind, apart from the United States of America, of course, that Russia was still in in transition from a mass military towards uh, something more uh, looking alike to the Western militaries focused on uh, small-scale operations. But the legacy of this very heavy legacy of the Soviet mobilization-based military was still there. Hence, they have Russia has a lot of reserves of equipment that they use now in, in Ukraine. And uh, while in the West, there were 30 years of uh, learning and experimentation of a limited overseas operations and especially counterinsurgency. And what does it mean? Numerically, it means that the force is uh, smaller, but way more professional and educated and trained uh, for a specific type of operation, while in the Russian case, it was uh, still not yet there, and of course now with the announcement of the mobilization, it's, it went back to the uh, larger militaries. So, and uh, why I'm saying this is because it's I think it's important when we debate about potential policy, uh, future foreign policy of Russia, especially its conflict with the Western states. Uh, I think we shouldn't be blind to the potential problems that uh, the Western countries can face when they, if they have to expand their military force significantly. In terms of the disregard for the human life, yeah, I, I always look at the political dimension of things. I mean, Russia hasn't had a long history of, like, I would say maybe any history of real Western-style democracy and. Uh, and especially liberal democracy based on human rights and uh, the respect for the lives of the citizens. So hence, uh, there, there were no political priorities that would make the military actually respect uh, uh, um, people as, as in uh, Western countries. And if there are no political priorities, there are no institutions and organizations that would control uh, both preemptively and also react to the violation of human rights within the military. And and another dimension, what I've seen in my research, what's interesting, the military, the Russian military has always complained about the quality of records they received. They always said that, uh, especially after the the Soviet Union, that the new records are weak, their health is bad, they are unpatriotic, they are uneducated, it's very hard to work with them. And it's it, it, I've see, I've seen this also in the media that some of the generals were trying to this, they were trying to propose, for example, military what what how do they call it prime uh, like primary military education at schools, some patriotic classes to allegedly prepare uh, students for to become recruits uh, to become better records when they enlist into the military. Uh, which is I find a bit problematic because on the other hand the civilians can always say, look, it's your problem that you cannot train and you cannot find an approach to the actually civilians who whose parents or they themselves later pay taxes and you pay these salaries for. So and this is a bit of a different dimension how civilians and the military can look at these things. But in my view, there is not even a discussion in, in the Russian military or in any. Magazines or journals, uh, I, I read about this. It's uh, it's the mainstream approach is yes, uh, humans for the military and not the military to create professional soldiers out of the citizens they have.
0: Pavel, you want anything to add? Yeah. So, this um, being so, um, what's the likelihood that Russia one day, but one day, this will change and Russia will end up so. Self- being a Western-style country uh, with um, Western-style civil-military uh, relationship, democratic uh, control over, over over the military, or or will it always be different? What's your what's your bet? Uh,
1: I I think I can start. Um, well, in my view, there are several layers to this. On the one hand, uh, Russia currently lacks some basic political institutions that regulate, uh, that, that can make uh, the civilian control more democratic, meaning that more uh, representative bodies will be involved in ensuring that the military acts as the civilian politicians uh, want and how the, and the constitution and other federal regulations require them to behave. And uh, this is possible to create because it's, uh, for example, in the early 2000s, there was a very well-developed bill on the civilian control. It was developed by the democratic forces, uh, politicians like Boris Nemtsov and other liberal democratic politicians were involved in it, and they developed this bill. But Putin was already the president. It has never passed the parliament. It's still there. The documents are there. It's available. So when we recently discussed it with some of the authors of that bill, and they think it's just minor adjustments, and it can be, um, it, it can pass through the parliament. It will and it will serve as a foundation of a more democratic civilian control. But of course, it's a matter of political institutions first, because it, you know elections and and so on, a free media and so on and so forth. Without that, it it would be problematic. Uh, so, I look quite optimistic in this regard, as long as politicians who or civil society members who want to become, I don't know, who want to be involved in, in the administration of Russia one day, understand that they should think not only about free media elections, uh, federalization, and other like civilian uh, democratic aspects, but also basically how to ensure that the arms, tanks, are under more democratic and stricter civilian control. And this is, I, 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 I am a bit critical of it. The debate is, in my view, relatively shallow, at least in the Russian language, uh, um, You know, bloggers and politicians I read and listen to. The other aspect is deeper. It's about changing the military s- structures and then finally changing the military culture. And this would take years, dozens of years in my view, uh, because it involves new education programs, uh, institutional changes within the general staff within the ministry of defense and but uh, again uh, if there there are good examples of eastern central eastern european countries or uh, for example portugal or spain or greece uh, countries that used to be dictatorships and they went through through this path. it yes it did take them lots of years but they managed to uh change uh, fine, uh, it, both institutions and the culture of the military towards uh, the system that is more democratic and ensures better um, control uh, for the civilian politicians. Pavel? Uh, yeah, I, I would
2: I totally would, uh, agree. Uh, although I would also uh, try to look at it from uh, a somewhat different angle. Uh, and uh, it is... Uh, what the russian state will be uh, in the future and uh more speaking of the military uh, what would be what would that state uh require of its military sort of and what's the function and and here uh i think that again we can we can see various scenarios uh and uh from uh very optimistic, to uh, slightly optimistic, to pessimistic, and others. And I think that that that, that would be uh, the primary uh, factor that would determine uh, the, uh, the the relationship between the civilians and the and the military. So, uh, and in fact, I'm 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 kind of a, I'm more optimistic uh, in 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 the, on this narrow issue of kind of a civilian control because. Uh, even uh even in today as we are uh, t- today in today's russia uh, if you could imagine uh, uh that the uh the civilian uh, kind of demand uh, and the civilians uh, would would have different ideas about security and all that you could easily imagine that the military would just adjust and they would uh, as uh, someone correctly mentioned, the, 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 the military never want to fight wars. I mean they are perfectly happy without wars and that's the uh, so uh, that is uh, in, in my view uh, more important and and for for that uh, to uh, happen, I mean for uh, uh, for, a, for a Russia that uh, does not, Need uh, a military force, uh, or for Russia that uh, does not think of the military as a foundation of its uh, security. uh, That is, uh, for that to happen, uh, well, uh, we we need to think about it. Uh, For example, and uh, uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm, I'm, I've been thinking about the uh, nuclear uh, nuclear things, but, uh, but for example, uh, if you uh, start thinking about these uh, scenarios, then, then even uh, if uh, we are talking about optimistic scenario, like, okay, there is a regime transformation, there is a kind of a, a reasonable democratic Russia that emerges, uh, what do we do with uh, nuclear weapons? Because I think it is, it is clear that uh, the uh, it's unsustainable the the presence of nuclear weapons uh, in Russia in Europe and uh, but uh, you cannot really solve the problem of Russian nuclear weapons without solving the problem of other nuclear weapons and uh, that's we 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 need to think about that we need to have that as a as a as a vision as a perspective uh, and uh, that's uh, uh, in my view. Uh, we, it's a political issue, and if we uh, kind of solve that uh, or at least have an idea how to uh, deal with that, uh, we yeah, then we could get to the place where we could worry about the kind of laws and the uh, kind of cultures and everything so that's
0: how would idea. you actually but how would you deal with that? I mean, I remember when President Obama had his global zero vision on nuclear weapons, i I was deep skeptic. I mean, I, um, I, I couldn't see how that could be done. Well, uh,
2: well, I mean, you you start, uh, yeah, you started asking uh, yourself uh, what whether what what do you get out of uh, nuclear weapons, and uh, and I think that it's. Uh, uh i i'm i'm in a camp uh maybe it's a camp of one uh but i'm in a camp that believes that uh nuclear weapons are indeed obsolete uh because they don't really contribute to your security at all uh no matter whether it's russia or uh the uh, united states nato and others uh or even north korea you, for that matter ukraine uh, might and, uh, dispute uh, that though with, with, well, no, but that's, yeah, but that's, uh, that's uh, if you look at it from kind of a one angle, the angle I would like to uh, look at it from is uh, that, yes, uh, I, I think I would agree uh, that uh, Russia uh, has been using, is using uh, uh, its nuclear weapons to uh, give itself uh, the, the option of fighting that war in Ukraine. Uh, to uh, invade Ukraine and to uh, sort of, it uses nuclear weapons as a cover for this aggression, right? So that's the, uh, that that is not disputed. Uh, my question is, uh, or my observation is that uh, Russia would have been so much better off if it hadn't invaded Ukraine, if it hadn't uh, annexed Crimea. And so, uh, so the, the, the conclusion that I would make is that nuclear weapons actually did active harm to the security of the country and the prosperity of the country and to uh, security of the population. So uh, in that sense, so if you start kind of thinking uh, I think from this angle, uh, I think that that's, yeah, that's different, which, and I would, I would even argue that Russia would be perfectly fine, just unilaterally dismantling its arsenal, but the, the people would disagree. And uh, and, the, and this is exactly where you, it, you come to the point where, uh, again, yes, if I would go there and say, oh, yeah, Russia should just kind of dismantle its uh, weapons, and every, Russia would be better off. Uh, but then we need to... We cannot do that in Russia alone. So it, that it would have to be kind of a larger... Uh, process that would involve the United States and others and it's not just kind of a physical dismantlement of weapons and, uh, and all that so but again uh, it, it should start in my view with this idea of uh, what do you get out of your nuclear weapons and the answer for very much every country would be nothing really and that's
0: yeah i I like your and I agree with your view that nuclear weapons have done disservice for Russia because the reason uh war with Ukraine was bad for security. I absolutely agree, but I think it will it will take lots of time before the guy in the Kremlin thinks thinks the same way. Takes definitely a different guy in the Kremlin.
2: I don't know. Maybe uh, you, we know. We we don't we don't know. In fact, it is it is an, it is an interesting uh, again. Uh, I'm not uh, saying that, uh, but you could you could look at it and uh, if you if you ask uh, kind of a perfectly authoritarian regimes and uh, uh, if you uh, look at them, sort of what, what is driving them? What is what is driving uh, your regular authoritarian? Uh, he wants to stay in power. And I would imagine that if what it takes to stay in power is to get rid of nuclear weapons, uh, it may be a good deal. So that's, uh, it it is. It it all depends on various circumstances, but I wouldn't uh, see that as an absolute, absolutely impossible. Uh, I think it's... uh, I would say yes, it is unlikely, but that's a different thing.
0: <laughs> Kirill, you had your hand up.
1: Um, yeah, since we started talking about different counterfactuals, I, I have my own, which is, which would be pr- problematic to some of the listeners uh, in Russia. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about the uh, uh, the cancellation of conscription in the Russian military. And when I kind of dug into this topic, I realized that from the civil military perspective, when you have an authoritarian country and you cancel conscription, you basically cancel one of the natural pillars of civilian control. It's a very uncomfortable pillar, basically controlling by the bodies of young men and their parents. But it is a pillar of civilian control because if you use these young guys, 18, 20 years old somewhere, without legitimization, and especially with... Very bad uh, combat effectiveness, and these young guys die there and get injured. Uh, you, as a politician, already foresee this, and probably it works as, as a safety mechanism that prevents you from doing something that you don't like, or afterwards, it serves as a political factor that uh, starts working against you. Because when you have, for example, now mobilized personnel with the average age of, like, I think, if I'm not mistaken, 35 37 years old. Which is one thing, and with a lot of money paid to them, a lot of money. And the other thing, when the initial invasion could have been conducted by the force uh, of uh, conscripts. And uh, this is these these are two different stories. And so when we talk about some of the Russian uh, civil society uh, members and politicians, I know, I do think that uh, this is this is all very much interconnected. And if we cancel conscription entirely without building uh, institutions of democratic civilian control, there is a high chance of creating a mercenary force, a force subject to only one ruler who pays their salaries, and then it can lead to uh, strategic uh, unintended consequences like the changing of the military culture towards more towards something we've, saw, we've seen, for example, in Wagner forces, which is a separate story that maybe we can one day uh, talk about.
0: Hmm. Pavel.
2: But uh, I think uh, this is uh, this is a very good point. Uh, but I would just uh, note that uh, it, it's uh, there is a somewhat similar dynamic in the, in the democratic countries. I've seen uh, people in the United States uh, seriously arguing that uh, yeah, conscription would be a, a good thing. And if you think about that, uh, maybe yes, if. Uh, the wars in, or the presence in uh, wars and presence in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, they would be different if people had uh, kind of a direct stake in, in in these wars. So there is this kind of a disconnect, uh, even in. Uh, uh, in a uh, country like the United States, and and I, I again, I've seen people being concerned about that. I mean, we can argue that there are other mechanisms, but uh, well, but then the question is uh, how well those other mechanisms actually work. And uh, so this is this is your field, uh, kind of. A, uh, but uh, yes, it, it is uh, it is a very a very interesting observation and I fully agree that uh, uh, in 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 an authoritarian state, uh, this is a very important uh, way of
0: people kind of
2: thinking and getting involved in this kind of decisions.
0: Well, thank you. Um, time is flying. so we need to wrap up soon. Uh, but before that we need to. We need to do our bookshelf section. Uh, it's an ECFR podcast tradition. Uh, before, before the end of each podcast, uh, everyone recommends a book or something else that he or she is reading or, or, or watching. So what's on your desk, Kirill? Kirill.
1: Um, I would uh, perhaps say as a very boring person focusing more on the policy aspects, uh, I, would, uh, I would mention not a book, but um, several um, uh, reports or international agreements. The first one is I do advise to, to read the OIC's Code of Conduct on political military aspects of security from 1994. It's a short document. But it lays out uh, basic requirements for uh, more democratic civilian control, which Russia is actually is a signee and part of. Uh, and another another resource that I would advise to uh, look into is the Geneva Center for Democratic Control of Armed Forces. They, for example, have, they publish a lot, like every month probably, but uh, they have very nice background there on uh, the democratic control of armed forces, just a description of this framework of democratic control, and uh, the uh, they had an interesting report on the democratic control of armed forces, the national and international parliamentary dimension report, which is about political institutions, parliaments, and, uh, and international aspects of Civilian control over armed forces.
0: Pavel, what do you recommend to us?
1: Well,
2: uh, I let say, I'm, I'm not much of a reader in the way I. Uh, I'm wondering how people have time to read anything more than the Twitter feed. So, uh, but yeah, uh, uh, and. Uh, one thing is uh, actually this, this question, uh, a colleague, a younger colleague uh, asked me and sort of what should I read about like deterrence? And, and, and I, again, I read the Twitter feed and I see that people are having various uh, views about deterrence and uh, restoring deterrence and this and that. Uh, and I said, well, you know what? There was a book uh, that I read some time ago because it's an old book and it's called Minds at War, it's Stephen Cole. And I would recommend you uh, because that's, uh, uh, that's uh, something kind of a, that gives you uh, kind of a window into the minds of people who kind of are thinking about deterrence and all that. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, it's kind of it's, it's relevant again these days. Uh, uh, but I think it is uh, it, it is a good book, at least uh, I'm glad that it was one of the first books on the that I've read. And uh, since then I have a very healthy skepticism about
0: the concept. Recommendation sounds truly interesting though. Myself, well military books are not my, my regular reading diet um, but there is one book that I would like to recommend though I'm not sure our listeners will necessarily manage to read it because it's it's a heavy book, both literally and, and figuratively. There is a lot in it. Uh, and that's classic, uh, Vasily Grossman, Life and Fate. Uh, a lot of uh, the book is set in Stalingrad, in Stalingrad battles. And there is a scene that stuck with me when I saw it in theatre, and uh, Lev Todin uh, had staged it in Leningrad, uh, San, I'm sorry, Lev Todin has staged it in St. Petersburg, a uh, small theater, Male Theater, and they played it in London uh, at Haymarket, where I saw it. And there is a scene where um, a tank commander in Stalingrad uh, is asked to enter a battle and he says, no, not yet. I'm not putting the lives of my boys in danger. Let the artillery work more when we go, when we lose less people. And it was very well done in theatre. These phone calls coming uh, through the artillery cannonade. He said, no, not yet. Then he said, yes, I'm going, but he wasn't. And the conscript was standing next to him and literally shaking of, of fear. It it really was very good. And when the war started in Ukraine, I was, I first recommended the the play to everyone, go and watch it. And then I started wondering if they still can play it when Russian soldiers were massively dying in the fields outside Bakhmut. I realized they cannot possibly be playing that in St. Petersburg anymore. And of course they didn't. It's it's taking off repertoire, Mm, but yes. Uh, about value in human of human life in Russian military at war, um, that is that is something to to potentially read. Uh, and book is panoramic. That is really essential book to understand certain things about Russia, but not an easy read. Uh, emotionally, also um, you know. For a moment that's accustomed to Twitter threads, as is mine too, <laughs> it actually takes considerable effort to, to get through, I don't know, 600 pages, 700. No, I think it was even 900. Whatever. A lot. But with that, we will wrap up. Uh, thank you very much, Pavel Bodvik, Kirill Shamiev uh, and Kadrilik.